The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to episode 35 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. Breast Cancer Awareness Month officially starts tomorrow. Starting today and for the entire month of October here on the podcast, we'll be talking about different breast cancer survivorship challenges each week. If you've been listening for a while, you know I believe that cancer awareness should be every day. And the more in tune we are with our body and what it's telling us, the more prepared we can be to advocate with our doctors when something seems off. This week, we're really diving into a topic of unspoken cancer truths. Many months ago, when we were still able to meet in person, I was out at an event locally with a whole group of breast cancer survivors. And after a few glasses of wine, that's when the real conversation starts to happen. So today, my guest is Tara Galliano. She's a licensed professional counselor and ASEC certified sex therapist who's worked with women for over two decades to get their sexy back. And as women who have been through breast cancer, there are many reasons that we can all use Tara's help. So I'm excited to have you here today. Welcome. Thanks so much, Jennifer. I'm so honored to be here and speak a little bit about my work rediscovering my body. It's such important work. And as breast cancer survivors, We go through so much with our bodies, and for some people, it can be really jarring, and for others, it can be sort of an under-the-radar thing that they're not even aware of how much it's really impacting them and how they feel about their body and whether or not they feel sexy or don't feel sexy. So I would love to have you share how you got into this work. And I know you've specifically worked with a number of cancer survivors as well. So I would love for you to share that. Absolutely. So the nature of this work began so many years ago um, when I connected with the nurse navigator at Boulder Community Health in Boulder, Colorado. So Nanabo Christensen is one of my favorite superheroes that is unsung. And what she did and what she does is she leads a breast cancer support group. And with that, she opens up conversations about difficult topics. And the one topic that kept on coming up again and again was sex and sexuality and how things will be maintained in their relationship and how women can feel sexy and how they can even just physically have intercourse again. And so she began to invite me into her breast cancer support groups and I would come in as a guest speaker and it was great and make these great connections with the women. They get a lot of questions answered. And what we noticed is the same questions were answered over and over again, and the same questions were asked. And we thought, oh my goodness, we need to get a course together so women can gather together, hear each other, support each other, learn some more about how they can be sexy again, feel sexy, and what are the parameters now or the new normal for themselves after cancer diagnosis, because cancer treatment and then, goodness, the whole cancer journey brings on so many different complications. For, for different women and, and different types of cancers. So taking that on, I took that task and I, I mean, I created this class that I just loved creating. It was a um, development um, of 
the questions that I'd gathered and the experiences that I'd gathered from those women who had asked initially. And from that, we created a six-week class, realized six weeks was a little bit too long of a commitment, shortened it down to four weeks, and then went up and running. And so we did that for about seven years in person, and it was phenomenal. And what, what I loved about it was it created this container of support for women where they were learning from me, but there was so much more that they were learning from each other and, again, supporting each other through the process and really learning how to listen to their bodies, know their bodies, love their bodies, and then from that experience, decide whether they wanted to share their bodies with another person to explore pleasure even deeper. That's such important work. And the community aspect, I think, is really important as well. Mm -hmm. And providing a a path for people to explore, I think, is so important in that support realm Mm -hmm. because that can be very different from place to place yes yeah what I would see is that oftentimes women wanted to ask questions and there was never quite this invitation to ask so they didn't want to ask their primary doctor they didn't want to ask their surgeon they didn't want to ask anybody specifically because they didn't know who would welcome that conversation oftentimes what I found is that they were working with physical therapist or massage therapist, somebody or a care provider who is touching them. And then there seemed like a little bit more opening. And not that that person had the answers that they were looking for, but at least there was a welcome of that conversation. Oftentimes doctors either are not comfortable with the topic of sex and sexuality, or they don't have the information that the person is seeking. And so they defer them to somebody else, hoping that somewhere along the line, somebody will pick up that question but nobody ever really does. I think the physical therapists and the massage therapists in the Boulder County area do a great job. And oftentimes what they would do is they would refer them to my practice and to this class. I know in my own experience, I raised it to a couple of my medical professionals and they were interesting. Mm -hmm. And it left me sort of feeling like, well, that didn't really like, answer my issue like that's not providing me with a solution to this challenge like I asked you the question and I didn't really get an answer and I think that that is also pretty common and I found it so interesting because I have talked with a lot of people in this space and being a breast cancer survivor myself, I think that's one of the other challenges when we're asking like our medical professionals, if they haven't experienced these things, that experiential piece does sort of play into the response. Yeah. And I think it's a big risk for the patient to use their voice to ask that question. It takes a lot of courage and bravery. and I get that. I mean, even people who are just calling me up on the phone for a consultation, feel like it takes a lot of courage to make that initial contact. And so for you to bring that up to your doctor, and then not really honor that you're questioning and that you're seeking an answer it is really frustrating, I would say, and dismissive. And oftentimes that wears a patient down where they're like, I'm not going to ask anymore, because I'm not going to get the answers that I want. I'm just going to Google it. Right. Yeah. And then that mm-hmm leads to a whole nother 
Yeah. That's a whole nother kettle of fish. And yes, in the, in the time that I was really seeking a lot of answers as well, I was having a terrible reaction to some medication. And I was asking every doctor that I had, because all my appointments seemed to like come at the same time. And I was getting no answers. And I was like, I'm asking these questions, like I'm putting them out there, I need someone to hear me. And it's interesting, too, when we look at research that's starting to happen in the trauma area, Mm -hmm. around being unheard. Mm -hmm. And that the trauma response that that's, they're starting to find that people are developing. So that's another interesting area of research. I found too, when I reached out to people, because I've heard different challenges over the years. And so when you and I had talked a few months ago, I was thinking, oh, I have like, there's people that I can go to and get their questions. And then we can, you know, chat about them. And it was so interesting how difficult it was to get people. And I said, it's all anonymous. Tara and I are going to have a conversation, um, posing everyone's anonymous questions. And the people that I got questions from were the people who I all know personally, who Mm -hmm. I've met, because there's that level of comfort. Mm-hmm. And yeah. in a lot of cases, we've had the conversations where I was like, hey, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> remember yeah. when we talked about, you know, this thing? Yeah, so there needs to be this level of intimacy between a person and another person before they can bring up the subject of sex and sexuality. Oftentimes, there's not a lot of comfort or fluency when we speak about sex and sexuality. Oftentimes, you don't have a working vocabulary. It's not something that we're taught. And we're not living in a sex positive culture. And so if we were, we would feel the comfort and be able to speak about things more freely. And we're not. And so for the words to form in our throat is really difficult. And then to release them out of our mouth is a whole nother kettle of fish, like you said. And I think that it needs to be assured that we're going to be received in the way that we want to be received so we can avoid that secondary trauma. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, it's not uh, culturally and societally, it's not a topic that we talk about. And Mm -hmm. it's also really interesting, like from the, the medical system perspective, like there's such a focus on treatment and getting you through treatment. And then in a lot of ways, I mean, there's I think there's 16.9 million cancer survivors. Mm, That's a lot of us, yeah. In the United States. Yeah, wow. And by 2022, I saw a number just last week. I think it's going to be 18 million by 2022. Hmm. Which is crazy. Yes. So when you think about all the challenges that we have after the fact, when they're like, you're good, go and prosper. And we're all like, what? What do you mean we're good? Like, Mm -hmm. there's all these things that are happening. And then 
we have these other challenges that no one's talking about. And there's that lack of security to kind of bring to the surface and talk about. Yes. And I I did want to say something about that, that I have noticed is that when men have prostate cancer, or even if men have testicular cancer, there's always the topic of functionality. And so there's always the the conversation about sex, sexuality, intercourse. And I I would say by and large, that is the exception. Um, For most other cancers, there is no conversation about sex and sexuality and functionality. And even if it is a woman struggling with uh, reproductive cancer. So interesting and um, unfortunate. Absolutely. And I I think as women, there's even more of a, I don't know that stigma is the right word, but there's even more, like it's just not talked about. Even when we broach the topic, it's just not that talked about. So we're going to go ahead and jump into some questions that I have gotten from the community. Um, one of the first ones, and I think this really goes right to the heart of, of what you talk about and helping people get their sexy back. Um, when we go through breast cancer surgeries and mastectomy surgery, it comes with a number of unspoken challenges that really have nothing to do with the mechanics of the surgery itself. Um, during my pre-surgery appointment, my plastic surgeon had said something like, they're just sex organs. It's kind of like a throwaway comment. And, but I was super sure from the moment I walked in the door that I was doing the bilateral. I was absolutely sure there was no question. And so it wasn't that she wasn't sensitive to that topic. It was just, these are the realities when you have this surgery, like there's a loss of sensation, there's, so it wasn't an insensitive comment, it was more of a factual comment that I didn't fully sort of comprehend at the time. So I have since been in different conversations where just the visual how things look after that type of surgery. And it can be very different for different people. Um, I had to have initially, I had to have uh, one of my nipples removed because on my affected side, I didn't have a clear margin. Yeah. And I was actually okay with that. Full disclosure. I had the other one removed in February because I had a lot of scar tissue and it was causing me a lot of pain Mm -hmm. and there wasn't sensation. It was not serving a function. Mm -hmm. And so I was okay with that. And for me, when I looked in the mirror, that was not a super significant impact to how I felt about myself. Um, And I know for other people that can be a really serious impact and really have a strong effect on how they feel. So one of our first questions is following surgery, it can be hard to connect with and feel sexy in your body at times due to all the challenges. 
So how do you maintain connection and intimacy when you have to deal with physical changes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And just to clarify that, how do you maintain connection with your significant other or with yourself? Um, I think in this case, it really was around with yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. We do have some other questions specifically about significant others. Okay. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. And I actually want to come back to the piece about what the doctor was saying about the sex organs. And so what I would say is that the breasts are an erogenous zone. I wouldn't say that they're sex organs is that uh, women experience and men experience pleasure through their breasts and through nipple stimulation. And that that is in a way, a way that we experience pleasure. Any part of our body can be an erogenous zone. And yet, there are some that seem to be um, kind of inherent for pleasure. And and we give life as women through our breasts, that that's how we nurture, that's how we breastfeed. So there's a positive, uh, I would say, expression that happens from this area of our body, which is different for men. It's a negative space. And so they're much more protective of their hearts. Women connect with each other through their heart space. so I think that there's probably a little bit more happening there than just the physical. There's the layers of the, I would say, psychic or spiritual and the emotional and the psychological that happen with our breasts. A lot of women and, you know, and for men, the counterpart would be uh, something happening with their prostate or, yeah, with prostate cancer that it impacts their identity of who they are as a man or as a woman in this case. So mastectomies really make women question, what makes me a woman? How am I as a woman? And that is a very, I would say, deep philosophical existential question. And one that is good to dive into in ways that are manageable, not that are overwhelming, but to tap into it as much as you can so you have a better sense of what does that mean for you today? Because that's where the connection begins. That's where the true intimacy begins. And that's also where you're going to be able to maintain your sense of self because you're going to have a better understanding and a new sense of who you are today and how you're showing up in this physical body is that we are dynamic beings and we're always evolving. We're always changing, whether it's hormonally or physically because of pregnancy or mastectomy or menopause or even the impact of emotional changes in our life, a divorce, a change of job, a relocation, all of those are impacting us. I would say even on a cellular level, um, that those are ways that we can often dismiss because they're not showing up in a physical way. But when they show up in a physical way, we oftentimes cannot deny the impact that it has had on our being. And so I like for people to start with very small baby steps, things that maybe they're already doing, um, maybe just a gentle little massage or an initiation of some type of touch of self-love where it's not necessarily masturbation and it's not necessarily to have orgasm, but it's really about enjoying the sensual pleasures of being in your body and knowing that your body is alive and that you have the capability and capacity to experience pleasure through your senses and really trying to revel in that in small doses, in small ways, because the more that we're able to normalize that experience, 
the more that we're bringing joy back into our lives, which is a really critical piece after a life-threatening journey. Absolutely. So we are going to take a quick break. And when Mm -hmm. we get back, we have many more questions from the community that we're going to have Tara provide her assistance with. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, Jen here. I hope you're enjoying the show. When I finished treatment, I discovered survivorship was way more challenging than I ever expected it to be. There are a lot of things no one prepares you for. I attended one support group meeting and knew that was not for me. The more people I talked with, the more I realized I was not alone. This podcast is a forum for people to share their cancer stories from start to present. And my Facebook group is a gathering space for people to find positive inspiration on the not-so-positive days. In a community of people who understand the challenges of this journey. So come on over and join the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. And be part of the conversation. When you see the question, how did you hear about us? Be sure to mention this podcast episode. I look forward to seeing you there. Welcome back. I'm here with Tara Galliano, and she is answering our questions about sex after breast cancer and other cancer treatments as well. But we're we're a little focused on breast cancer today. So one of the challenges for young women and older women alike are the issues that can come up in regard to hormone therapy or chemotherapy, anything that affects our hormone levels. Um, For young survivors, we might be plunged into menopause from chemo and hormone therapies overnight with no adjustment period, (laughs) which has a whole set of challenges. But also for older women um, who might be put on hormone therapy, it can kind of cause them to revert to some of those you know, less than pleasant side effects of menopause that they thought were behind them. Um, So one of the questions that we have is how can women kind of move past the mental hurdle of being uninterested in sex when their sex drive is impacted by this significant sudden shift in hormones? Yes. Uh-huh, yeah. And and the discomfort that that brings on for so many women, I think is really the primary piece is that needs to be addressed. And the ways that I like to address that, uh, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, but I really like to look at uh, lifestyle changes that are within our means that we can do. Like lavender spray is really helpful. It's cooling. Uh, it's an antimicrobial. And it also just helps one relax which is a really important thing when you're experiencing hot flashes or other symptoms of menopause. Another thing that I recommend is using um, preferably organic cotton sheets, but cotton sheets because they allow your body to breathe. And, you know, along that lines, if you're able to wear clothing that allows your body to breathe, then that's going to be so much more helpful for you when the heat rises and then it goes back down. So if you're wearing something uh, like silk or, or even wool is great because it really allows the body to breathe in a way that retains the heat, but also releases it when you need it. 
So looking at natural fibers, things like polyester are going to trap that moisture and heat in your body and really create more discomfort. So those are some of the simple things that I ask women to look at. Also, it's kind of a buzzkill, uh, limit your alcohol, limit your caffeine and sugar if you're sensitive to that. So those are things that you might consider as well if you want to figure out how you can manage effectively the hot flashes and the discomfort that comes with it. Another piece that comes up for women around, goodness, menopausal symptoms are the dryness that they experience, vaginal dryness. Yes. And so I think that's really a critical piece and that there needs to be some vaginal rejuvenation that happens. And a lot of that is through moisture. So topical moisture applied to the vagina is great. I like to recommend that women do that at night. It's a little bit messy, but put a towel down, insert with a syringe some almond oil into your vagina. Organic is preferable. And then just massage that in and leave it in for the duration of the night. And again, it it may seep out, but a lot of it actually will be absorbed into the vaginal tissues and that will restore it and cause some rejuvenation and actually allow a little bit more moisture there. And that is going to help tremendously because when the vagina is dry and the vulva is dry and we're feeling that friction during the day, it can be so uncomfortable, let alone thinking about having intercourse or having somebody touch that area, including ourselves in a pleasurable way. So really addressing the discomfort is going to be critical before you get into the next piece of not being interested in sex. So I feel like sex is kind of like 60 miles per hour. And most (laughs) women after cancer or or even after cancer diagnosis are like kind of at the zero mark. And and that's fine. Sometimes they're even a little bit slower than that. And that's fine too. So really meeting yourself where you're at. And I think there's an honoring that happens when we're able to meet ourselves where we're at. It's not that we're aggressive and like, I have this game plan and we need to be there. I need to be having, you know, mind blowing sex and orgasms. Like when we put that on ourselves, even though it seems like it's a good thing, it's a lot of pressure. But when we allow ourselves to unfold and really allow the pleasure to just be, then we can explore it in a very simple way and notice again, coming back to the massage where the massage feels good on your body, exploring, you know, scrunching up your hair or having a head massage. And that there are really simple ways to introduce pleasure. I think tactile contact, if you have a partner, a significant other, is really important. But the more that you're able to connect physically and have your goodness, senses connected in a sensual way, that that's very helpful, whether it's skin on skin, um, just touching each other, which is sometimes all you can do. I had a friend who would just lie next to her partner naked in bed and it was not sexual in any way that they weren't doing anything to be sexual, but they were just doing this to be intimate with each other, just to be naked, just to be honoring of each other and to notice that this is where they were at today. And it was so beautiful. And I think consciously setting the time aside is very critical. And I would say that by and large, that is the biggest thing that any of us can do to improve our relationship. I feel like it is a a sacrament, if you will, that it's something that we need to do on a regular basis. And that if we bypass that, then the relationship starts to deteriorate. 
And the way that we need to come together needs to be agreed upon with our partner. And again, it doesn't need to be this, you know, 60 miles per hour, mind blowing sex. It can just be this intimate experience of we're going to give each other massages. We're just going to do this for 45 minutes. I'm just going to rub your feet. One of probably the most intimate things you can do with your partner is to wash their feet and massage it. How many times has anybody ever done that for you in your life? So simple, so beautiful, so honoring. Yeah, that's, I love that advice. And it really follows on with several of the other comments and questions that we've gotten as well. One of them was around like the messages in the world about quantity of activity, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> like there's so much and and that's an interesting thing because we see it in so many different places. Yet one of one of the community members said, why do we get caught up in what others think about how often a couple should be engaging in sexual activity without it being a negative reflection of a bigger issue. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just crazy messages that we get. We live in this hyper-sexualized world where it's all over the place, inappropriately, media influences everywhere. And it's, you know, billboards of, you know, sex massages and all sorts of things. And then, you know, the actual ability, again, to speak about it and own it, it's so not there, that we don't foster that and cultivate that in a loving way. I mean, I can just reference a hookup culture that happens for young people or did happen. I don't know that it's happening so much now in coronavirus, but the hookup culture where women women and men are connecting with each other, uh, obliterated and not necessarily coherent and conscious, but using alcohol or other substances, having hookups, one night stands, and then not even knowing the person's last name and you know, those are not relationships, those are not intimacy. And so that's a way of being sexual. Yes. But the quality of intimacy that I think that most people want, especially when they get to a certain level of maturation, is really what we desire. And that sex and sexuality provides a vehicle for that quality of intimacy. So quantity is so boring to me because you can have sex with anybody at any time on the internet or in person or however, but the quality of intimacy that we create with another human being takes a different skill. And I know that we're so much more yearning to feel that and to have that experience and to show up for our beloved in that way. Um, and that takes skill and that's not easy. And again, that's not something that we learn, um, but we're all, I would say, so craving that in our lives today. And so I'm not really big on quantity. Um, I think quality is so much better, but the consistency that something happens is going to get you to the quality. I think if we think that it will organically happen and one day I'll feel that way, that, that's not how it works. It's something about consistently showing up, whether you're feeling vulnerable or you're feeling like, I don't want to do this, or I'm scared, or this isn't going to be the way that it was in the past. And I feel shame about that. All of those ways that we show up and we don't love ourselves, um, if we can show up just a little bit like that and share that with our partner, then they're able to hold the space 
and that we can create that container and come back to it consistently and know we're allowed to show up in however we are in whatever way we are in that moment. And that is a beautiful thing. Absolutely. And that intimacy is the thing that I think gets us that longevity in relationships as well. Like, mm-hmm. Because as we age and my husband has had a bunch of medical appointments and he's like, if one more person says you're getting older, <laughs> but it's true like as we age things things change priorities shift how everything sort of functions changes and that love having that level of intimacy in a relationship and being able to foster that and I think that that's also what facilitates being able to have the conversations yes Mm yes And I think it's really important to say, because I did work with a lot of women who had cancer, cancer diagnosis, who also were single or their relationship status changed during the process of cancer. And that, yes, this is a way of being in the world and showing up for yourself that you can cultivate in dating situations. Um, I don't think that, um, goodness. It's just exclusive for people that are in a significant relationship or have a domestic partner, but it is for all people. How are we showing up in that way? We can have those deeper conversations and we can, you know, connect with a person in an intimate way that is, isn't necessarily about being connected sexually, but it's really creating and cultivating that intimacy that is just the beginning of a courtship. Um, And what that looks like is different for different people. And I'm happy to answer specific questions about that. But I did just want to say that in general. No, I think that that's a great, a great point, because it is true. There are many people that go through this journey and perhaps they had a partner at the beginning of the journey and do not at the end for many of these reasons that we're talking about. And I think it makes us approach our relationships differently as well. If there was not that level of intimacy happening, then we know that that's kind of a requirement for us as we're moving forward. So I think it creates a whole nother language to speak as we are moving through our relationships with other people with ourselves really getting clear on what where we are and what we want from another human in a relationship that's a partnership yes Uh yes and I do think absolutely that is so true and that the quality of relationships change then and the quality of relationship that we have with ourselves is really the critical one that will then set the tone for the other relationships that we embark upon and that's really important and I do see that when cancer strikes and there is some weakness within the partnership and one person in the partnership is wanting sex and they can't have it now from their main partner they get angry sometimes 
They may seek it elsewhere. They may end the relationship. And so there's natural fall away. And in addition to having cancer, then the loss of the relationship is so excruciatingly painful. And yet women persevere, they continue, and they recognize that that wasn't the relationship that they needed, that it didn't support them in all the ways that they needed to be supported, that cancer is really this crucible that's going to bring out the leaden pieces that aren't going to turn into gold. Right. Yeah. So, so important. That also kind of brings us along to, and we've talked about this a little bit, even when you're in a tremendously loving, supportive, and communicative relationship with a person whom you're physically and emotionally attracted to, there's no desire to make a move because there are challenges with how things are functioning. And so how do you get out of the rut of not doing anything about it when such an important factor is the arousal part? And I know you've talked about this in a few, we've alluded to this in a few other ways. Yeah. So um, there's a few things that I want to talk about in terms of this question. So one thing is that when the partners are in a loving relationship, and one of them gets sick with cancer, often the other one becomes a caregiver. And for that person, they are devoted and really doting on the person who needs them. And and it's beautiful. And what I find is that when uh, treatment is over, there is a lot of fear in the person who's been, well, for both of them, but the person who's been the caregiver forgets how to come back to the role of lover, as does the person who's had cancer. But there's a fear that inhibits the caregiver. And they are afraid of if I touch her, will she feel pain? If I am too firm with her, will that hurt her? And I would never want to do that. So better for me not to touch her. And she'll lead me, she'll tell me what she needs. And oftentimes, that doesn't happen. And so there needs to be a lot more conscious conversation instead of avoidance. And I think the avoidance and the aversion happens from a good intention of not wanting to harm, but then there is this giant chasm that needs to be crossed so there can be some intimacy. So what I like to recommend to couples is go for a weekend away, you know, get out of your responsibilities as best you can. And even if that you can't get out of the house, but just put the computers and everything away, just have fun. And I think the more that you're able to engage playfulness, your imagination and curiosity and laughter, the more fun you can have. And I've had clients who've just tried this, gone out of their regular home, gone away for the weekend and not had the expectation that we're going to have mind blowing sex and we're going to have orgasms, but we're just going to have fun together in whatever way that they look like. And they come back and they say, we had the kinkiest, wildest, sensual time of our lives. And it was so fun because it was just an adventure and we didn't know where it was going to go. So really allowing yourself the permission. And again, coming back to the consistency. And so if the caregiver, just in terms of delineating roles, reaches out to the woman who had cancer, their partner, and extends himself, and it wasn't quite right, or they made a mistake, that that's okay. But they've they've made an invitation, they've made a connection. And the woman can say, yay or nay, you know, not tonight, or yes, I appreciate that, let's go for it. 
and then the opportunities for her to reciprocate at another time. And that it's not just dependent on one person always initiating again and again, because that person who always initiates will always experience rejection because the other person gets to say yes or no. And so there needs to be some fairness in that, even though it might be an artifice, but at least initially. So this way you can build up your confidence again, that you can do this and just take these baby steps of we're moving closer to each other because we have so much love for each other. And we're going to try these simple things like I'll wash your feet and I'll give you a massage. I'll give you a full body massage or we'll go, you know, away for the weekend and try some, you know, games and things. So whatever that may look like that you agree upon. So there's that piece. And then the other piece is about arousal and desire. And so oftentimes when we look at how that cycle goes, particularly for women, we imagine that desire precedes arousal. And as we get older, that is not often the case. When we're hormonal and young, it's okay. We feel the desire, we have the arousal, and arousal are really just the physical symptoms of desire. So it's lubrication, it's engorgement, it's uh, racing heart, it's sweating. It's like those physical symptoms. And then we go on to the next step if we're stimulated enough. But oftentimes the desire, which is really more of a thought, doesn't happen for us as we get older until after the arousal. And for women that takes 20 or 30 minutes just in general, because we need to be warmed up. And that is a wonderful experience in and of itself. And that could be all you ever do. But in that experience of arousal, desire may happen and you're like, oh, I think I'd like a little bit more. But oftentimes it switches like I said, as we get older. So I, I don't believe in these linear processes um, and that when we see things in this linear way, we see our bodies as mechanistic. So I feel the stimulation, I have this orgasm, and then I ejaculate. Kind of that's the trajectory. And we know that sex and intimacy is so much more and there's so many different ways that we can connect with our beloved or ourselves or whomever we choose and that there are a multitude of experiences that we can explore so I like to say sex is a menu and we can have a dessert and a main course and we can have an appetizer we can have a drink we can have whatever it is that we like we can coordinate them you know kind of mix and match it's not always this linear progression because that is the limiting process of what we've oftentimes learned by default by pornography or lack of education or sexual myths that persist. Well, and I think that's so important to shine light on that it does shift over time, the, the process, so to speak, and how, how that all works. And I think it's also important circling back on the caregiver kind of partner roles. It's, I think it's also really important to have kind of that give and take and because the caregiver can start to feel like, ooh, maybe, maybe it's me. Like not, 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 if the communication's not there and the understanding's not there, then I think we start to get in our own head. And the story that's going on in our own head is usually not the same. It's not the reality. Right. Yeah. It's just the story that we have going on in our head that's <laughs> causing doubt and unrest and fear. And so to kind of be able to get out of that and say, 
I have a crazy story happening. Because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times it is, it is a story that in, yeah. in many, many of the topics that we're going to be talking about in the coming month, there's, there's the story of, is this happening? Why is this happening? Because there's so many of the topics that no one prepares you for. And not only does no one prepare you for these challenges, but then nobody is talking about them. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, and that's so well said, because I think it's absolutely the narrative that gets trapped in our head that once we disrupt it by vocalizing it, it's a huge game changer. And then our partner can respond like, oh, that's what was going on. Oh, now I know. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's it's so interesting because I think the more that we're able to talk, not only with our partner, but with one another as women that have been through this challenge, Several women that I know who've had bilateral mastectomies, not necessarily in one case with radiation, in in other cases, not radiation, like one side's a little tighter and higher than the other side, or there's like contracting happening. And as one of my friends say said, it's like this side's a softball and this side's like, quote unquote, normal. But then I feel weird about it because like this side's a softball. And then in every single case where we've talked to our partner, they're like, yeah, I don't care. This yeah. doesn't matter to me. Like yeah. we care. It matters yeah. to us, but they're like, yeah, no. Oh yeah. yeah. I guess it is different. Yeah. But they don't even notice. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's also so well said. Cause I hear that again and again, that's so true. <laughs> I mean, but we've all like had the same conversation with each other, like, and then when we have the conversation with our partner, it's like the exact same conversation. They're like, yeah, no, I didn't notice. Yep. <laughs> didn't, it wasn't even on my radar. Right. And then it's like, oh, well, we were all like wrapped around the axle about this thing that they didn't even notice. Yep. It's almost like, you got a new hairstyle and oh you got a new hairstyle <laughs> yes <laughs> well thank you so much the time goes so 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 quickly yeah so we i'm just going to put it over to you real quick if you have any like wrap up thoughts or things that occurred to you Oh, yeah. I just want to say quickly, if I can, that, you know, what I notice is that, and it would be remiss if I did not mention this, is that a lot of women have mentioned to me, even though they had breast cancer, not reproductive cancer, that they have needed dilators. And I want to say that there are so many wonderful dilators out there. And so what they are is they look like dildos and they're inserted into the vagina and they go from the smallest, which might be the size of your pinky, and they work all the way up to about the girth of the shaft of a penis, and that those are really integral to the healing process, and that you are in control of how that works, and that it's a very gentle process, again, that when we're self-aggressive with ourselves, that that never works, and that 
yeah, when we have the expectation, the agenda that this is the way that it needs to be, that is not the approach. But when you're able to use the dilators in a loving way, in a gentle way, in a consistent way, that that is really the key to success. And if you want more uh, information about that, I'm happy to speak with people about that or women about that, because so many women have told me that they had not heard about dilators during their treatment, after their treatment, and now they're five, 12 years out. And they're like, this is the first I've heard of that. And I feel like that's criminal. So I just needed to say that because women, we need to know. (laughs) Yes. And there are so many times where I'm like, why? Why are we not telling people all the things? There's all the things. Yeah. There's so many categories of long-term and late occurring side effects of all these treatments that people go through and introducing people to therapy and different, the right kind of support groups and where they're getting questions answered and moving through their process, I think Mm -hmm. is so important. And in a lot of ways, a gap Mm -hmm. that we have. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. This was, I'm really looking forward to hearing people's feedback and on the website, unspokencancertruths.com, you will be able to find um, some reference info for Tara and her website. So thank you so much for being here today. Mm, and my pleasure. Please come back and join us next week when I will be talking with a panel of four additional breast cancer survivors. We will be talking about the topic of cognitive dysfunction and the challenges that go on with our brain following all of this treatment. So please give us a listen and come on over to the Facebook group Surviving is Just the Beginning and I would love for you to share your thoughts about this week's episode. Have a great week and thanks for listening.